Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. What explains the ongoing fetish for non-Buddhism here at the Imperfect Buddha podcast? It's a question that I've been asked, perhaps not in those exact words, but something along the lines of it. Come on, Matthew. What is it? Okay, it's interesting, intelligent critique, but what about practice? What about the emotional sphere? What about meditation? What about your day-to-day existence and the need for practices and techniques that help you to address your confusion, your suffering, the difficulties of human existence? Now, of course, I am sympathetic to such questions and on the one hand a response could be yes I agree with you and no worries got that covered I have a daily meditation practice which is fundamental to my own internal balance and capacity to meet life face life and engage with it in ways which are non- or non is perhaps too big a word here, but less reactive, and that allow me to do what much of Buddhism does allow us to do on a good day. Purify negative karma, or that is, relax out of and uncouple my attention from reactive patterns. Cease to identify with the emotional content of my life and my own ideas and beliefs generate something we like to call energy, right? Vitality, positivity, um, energetic resources, emotional, mental resources. Again, we could say it in many ways, but most of you will immediately know what I'm pointing to. There is an issue, though, which, of course, is the issue that non-Buddhism gets to and which is too often ignored in the pursuit of a personal practice and that is the social role of the world in shaping, conditioning, limiting, channeling, focusing, and subverting, if we want to be more subversive, that personal practice, the way we live it, the way we experience it, and what we do or don't do with it. And that is why some kind of social recognition, or rather some recognition of the social in practice, is so fundamental. And non-Buddhism does that better than any other system of thought or practice that I've come across. It's not only that. Like many, I have come to the world of spirituality, religion and practice driven by intuitions, by deep feelings, deep desires, but also neurosis, concern, worry, anxiety, the need to reduce or address fears, paranoia, difficulty, insecurity, and so on. 
So what it is that has brought me to practice was not just the desire for freedom or the desire to address suffering, but the desire to understand the nature of suffering. And Buddhism has been immensely helpful in that process. But of course, it has its limits like all systems of practice and thought and all religions. The social, at least to me, was so clearly fundamental in shaping my own internal landscape of the good and the bad, or rather the pleasure-seeking and pleasantness and joy and happiness that is one part of being human, but also that anxiety, insecurity, doubt, difficulty, confusion, and so on. Non-Buddhism thus is a constant companion, or rather is integrated into the personal for me. It's a necessary feature of the way I think about anything beyond Buddhism of worth and value. So I'm approaching philosophical thought, pedagogical practice in my teaching work, in current events, current affairs, the culture wars, wokeism, the new left, the new right, fascism in Italy, all of it. Non-Buddhism and non-philosophy provide and have provided a means for understanding my own desire to think about all of it in a critical, constructive and creative manner. For that reason, non-Buddhism, at least for me, is not going anywhere. That said, I don't want to drown other ways of thinking and practicing in the veneer and the language and the concerns of non-Buddhism. What's coming up this year is a series on Tantra, which is my preferred practice and something I adore, love and provides immense, immense benefit to me in my day-to-day -day life. But the critical and the practical are companions and they will continue to journey together. Sometimes one is more present than the other, but they are always in relationship. And even as they spend time apart, they come back together and share what they have learned. Now, in honor of the 100th episode in which Glenn Wallace was kind enough to come on, and in which we discussed a variety of topics, and of course non-Buddhism came up again, I have also been involved in putting together an article for Tricycle Magazine, an introduction to the topic of non-Buddhism, which, as many of you will know, is something that I've done at the Imperfect Buddha website in an accessible manner, at least to the best of my ability. I thought it would be good to put together a quick think piece in which I read a review I wrote for Glenn's book, perhaps the pinnacle of his work on non-Buddhism so far, a critique of Western Buddhism for Bloomsbury, which I will remind you all is freely available. It's open access. If you go to the Bloomsbury site, you can download a copy. Now, in recording this, I was surprised at how long and rich <laughs> this review is. And in that way, it also acts as a kind of introduction to the topic. And although I felt a bit nervous about recording such a long think piece, I think there is value in it for those coming from that tricycle piece, from the future that is, to listen to this. All those of you who have thought about it, uh, but been, let's say, afraid to dive in further. Now do be aware, 
I am very aware of why people might avoid such work. And part of the challenge for me at least has been to try and address those concerns. Because I believe quite deeply, through experience and working with others, that these materials, if taken as such, as materials of practice, can help you, the listener, liberate yourself more fully from the social forms of suffering and ignorance that make all of our lives just what they are. Now, a few extra words. These are some of the praise that were given for Glenn's work. Richard K. Payne, a past guest of ours, Yehan Numatu, Professor of Japanese Buddhist Studies, describes it as the single most important book of contemporary Buddhist philosophic reflection. Wallace's critique masterfully addresses the twinned question central to contemporary Buddhism. What use is being made of Buddhism today? And what use is Buddhism today? Anthony Paul Smith, Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology at La Salle University in the US, describes it as a very rare and precious thing to find a book such as this, which engages as deeply with religious materials as it does with the philosophical. Wallace brings together resources from continental philosophy and concepts and ideas from Buddhism to carry out a fecund project that grows in the ruins of our philosophical and religious pretensions and arrogance. Stuart Smithers, Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Puget Sound, USA, describes Wallace's critique as a bold commentary and analysis of Western Buddhism that runs against the mainstream. His central arguments are convincing and should certainly enter into discussions of mindfulness practices and adaptions of Buddhism in Western societies. This book will challenge the thinking and practice of many readers, making some uncomfortable, but will be a life preserver for others. Hear, hear, Stuart. Agree fully. And with that, I will pass you on to the review written by moi on a critique of Western Buddhism. Now, Glenn should need no introduction to those who regularly visit the Imperfect Buddha website and engage with the podcast. But just in case it is your first time here, I'll provide you with the essentials. Now, Wallace holds a PhD from Harvard in Buddhist studies and has authored several books on Buddhism, including The Dhammapada, Verses on the Way, Meditating on the Power of the Buddhas, and basic teachings of the Buddha. He's even written articles for Lion's Roar. Yes, that was a while back. Now, his first foray into book form, in touching on the argument of non-Buddhism, is called Cruel Theory Sublime Practice, which is still in print, which was a joint work with two other authors. Wallace has taught in a number of universities, including Georgia, where he received tenure, and later went on to work in innovative educational institutes, among which the One Institute. He was also a founding member of the Philadelphia punk band Ruin. My first encounter with him was through the speculative non-Buddhism site and his experimental writing on contemporary Western Buddhism there. That site brought him to the attention of many folks at the fringes of Western Buddhism, and it was 
a cauldron of creative intellectual activity right from its inception, amassing very long, complex exchanges with readers in its comment sections, exploring all manner of topic from neuroscience to Marxism, with some highly intelligent contributors getting into rather lengthy debate. Now, it was also a site of conflict, argumentation, and the wrath of its chief antagonist, Tom Pepper, a contributing author to that book, Cruel Theory, Sublime Practice. Now, he was known for rants against capitalism, anti-intellectualism, and the ignorance of those who could not grasp his insights, which were, well, I guess more or less legendary, and often for bad reasons. Whatever the controversy, many exciting approaches to Buddhist materials were cooked up at the site, and perhaps its charge was, in great part, the kind of accumulation of frustration amongst many intelligent Buddhist practitioners at the lack of critique taking place out there. Those dogged enough to stick with Buddhism in spite of its faults found much succulence there, and dare I say meaning. The site was a sort of explosion of Western Buddhism's dark unconscious, its anti-intellectual turn and its closeness to New Age idealism, its comfortable affinity towards Hindu beliefs, and its strong adoption by middle-class America as a kind of coping mechanism, and, what's more, its comfortable alignment with capitalism. Now, because those are things many Western Buddhists are either unaware of or don't want to look at or perhaps consider unimportant, it was often uncomfortable to read about such things at the website. These facets, though, of the contemporary Buddhist landscape of the time were all uncovered, critiqued and in many ways abused. Those whose intellectual cowardice was on display would leave with a bloody nose. But those who were aware of their ignorance or came specifically to challenge their views would often find great generosity and sharp, bracing insight, as well as humour. Perhaps not everybody's kind of humour, but humour nonetheless. It was certainly a break from the often dull norms of Western Buddhist niceness, and its main participants would argue that such fierce critique was the only thing that would disrupt such niceness and the intellectual complacency of so many Western Buddhists. Now, Wallace was certainly the ideal person to carry out such a disruption, and for many it was the most exciting thing to happen in Western Buddhism for a couple of decades. The SMB was in many ways the carnal ground of Wallace's most recent book that I'm reviewing here, A Critique of Western Buddhism, Ruins of the Buddhist Real. It's an academic text published by Bloomsbury and is designed in many ways to meet the needs of an academic text for those studying such matters. That doesn't mean the text is not worth looking at if you are one of those at least reasonably intelligent folks with an open mind. And just in case you don't know, it is worth noting at this point that Wallace has been a long-term meditation practitioner and has taught meditation and Buddhism, even leading retreats. So he's not a mere intellectual academic looking in onto Buddhism from the outside or some kind of intellectual who just wants to trash the practical. Of course, it would be far easier to dismiss him and his views if he were. His work does not only critique Buddhism and its many forms in the West, but very much seeks to revivify practices that might liberate folks to the potential 
that is held within Buddhist thought and practice, a potential that has been all too often enclosed in an unimaginative ideological adherence to the status quo of Western spirituality and a willing participation in wider economic and social norms more specifically. Should that matter? Does it matter? Well, think on it. Now, to engage or not to engage. In the book's name is its purpose. To critique, I remind you, because we all forget this sometimes, is not to criticise. The two are partners, of course, but to critique is to analyse and evaluate a thing, opening up new spaces of understanding, categorising and perception. The object at hand is Western Buddhism. To critique is to attempt to suspend one's excess of attachment or disinterest in a thing. And of course, for many Buddhists in the West, Buddhism is such a precious jewel that the idea of critiquing it is, well, just unacceptable. And for those who consider it perfectly fine, often the excuses for not engaging it are a return to the practical and direct experience. But even such matters are worthy of critique. Now, those who are intellectually astute and deeply embedded in Buddhist practice would certainly benefit from reading this book, as it crafts its critique of the landscape of contemporary Western Buddhism. Though it may make for an uncomfortable read for those too closely wed to Buddhism as a source of meaning in their lives. Reasons for resisting powerful critique of one's own practice are numerous, of course and self-defence is a perfectly understandable instinct that drives much of the antipathy towards intellectual intrusion on the sacred spaces of experience, subjectivity, personal spirituality, and the pragmatism that defines much of American Buddhism. Many Buddhists are, of course, highly intelligent, and many of them will happily profess that Buddhism is not a religion, but a philosophy. As if that somehow excuse their interest in it. I guess polite society would be more willing to accept that. Yet what follows, too often, is a very limited engagement with philosophical thought. There is a tendency to cherry-pick those areas which resonate with one's own beliefs and practices. As if philosophy were done and dusted, and there was no more work to be done in addressing life's big questions. Critique of traditional Buddhism by such folks may touch on the more exotic pre-modern aspects, such as reincarnation or karma, but there are always limits, and those limits are telling. In fact, they are the sites of most interest. They betray an agenda-driven engagement with critical material that marks out those who are, to some degree, and I hope you don't mind me using this word, ideologically wed to a given tradition of practice and belief. Buddhists are no different from other members of wider society after all, and it is the special status afforded by a genuine association with an ideological form that compels its members to shun that which would significantly disrupt the ideology's cherished vision of the world, and the certainty, direction and sense of participation that makes ideological affiliation so attractive. Now, I hope you don't mind me using this word ideological. There are various ways of conceiving it. But in the way I'm using it, it transcends mere political systems or belief systems. It is not just a set of ideas for imagining or making the world. Ideology operates consciously, subconsciously and unconsciously. It is, in a sense, the social personality, the 
shared identity that builds around any form of group activity, from a country such as England, to a Buddhism of your choice, and to any meaning-making system that one aligns with and practices and becomes an integral part of. Ideology refers to concepts developed by the Italian intellectual Gramsci and the French intellectual Althusser, who discovered in their analysis of ideology that it was not merely the external, but it was also the way the external infiltrates and becomes integral and forms part of the internal. That means your subjective experience. So that we are, in a sense, both ourselves, but also a product and a piece of wider society. And our language, our emotions, our ideas and our behaviour, and above all our expectations about what things are or are not. Of course, some will disagree with that. But the ideas themselves make sense, and using them as tools to think about your own relationship with Buddhism is well worth your time. Glenn's book is certainly a means for coming at that. It provides a set of tools for understanding and illuminating the internal structures of Buddhism within your own subjective self. It is true, we all need direction, purpose, and long for a sense of belonging, and a good ideology can provide all of this, but always at a price. Wallace's critique throughout his text unpacks, destabilizes, and reframes the narratives of contemporary Western Buddhist discourse, identifying in the process the habits that form so many Western Buddhists into predictable kinds of subjects, run through with ideological features that range from beliefs to language patterns, from behaviours to perceptual limitations, hopes and fears, resistances, and, so importantly, desires. The desire for a peaceful mind, the desire to transcend your busy, annoying, uncomfortable, dysfunctional self, the desire to wake up, the desire to be free, the desire to awaken and to reach enlightenment, the desire to have meaning through being a bodhisattva, the desire to be in meditation all the time, increase bliss and emptiness, you name it. Necessarily, Wallace's book should be uncomfortable reading if it is attacking such ideas. But is it really attacking them, or is it just highlighting how our commitment to these forms of desire is a participation in a wider group practice? And when we become conscious of it as that, as well as what we may initially believe it to be, it starts to change its features, we start to see it more fully, and perhaps we start to understand why it is that such things are so often out of reach, and so often the cause of suffering. Now Wallace's book may be a challenge for its use of theoretical tools. Notice the two together, theoretical and tool. Language and concepts that may be new, but also because it challenges so much of what is taken as given by spiritual folks more generally, and more specifically, those Western Buddhists who believe that their paths are fully complete, and all they have to do is just realise them as fully as possible. Again, even that statement might be uncomfortable for some of you to hear. For those that frown upon the critique of Buddhism, and believe that it must always be filtered through the higher, greater, wiser, and compassionate truths of Buddhism, such criticism must affirm the truths of Buddhism or be rejected. But why would we want analysis and critique that leaves us feeling comfortable, or only mildly discomforted in our habitual terrains of practice and belief? 
Such resistance is all too often a symptom of the anti-intellectual strain in Western Buddhism, which often gets expressed as a sort of snobbery towards what is perceived to be excessive intellectualizing. This is justified through various contemporary Buddhist teachings that promote experience over thought and practice over theory. It is an odd bias that contradicts Buddhism's rich history of thought, theoretical practices, and support and insistence on study, reflection, and debate. And that's without mentioning the enormous canon of Buddhist literature. Ah, but that's different, you might say. But then I might add, have you ever read the Abhidharma? Have you given Jason Kappa's work a thorough look at? Have you investigated the consequences of Nagarjuna's thought? Complexity is perhaps a second reason for not engaging with challenging thought of the like to be found in Wallace's book. Spirituality generally struggles in its relationship with the material and can act to distract practitioners from the surrounding material conditions and the insipid place of ideology in establishing the ground of what we see, we don't see, feel, or don't feel, can know, or not know, imagine, or not. We ignore the fabricated nature of our habitual engagement with knowledge as a coping mechanism, because it's easier that way. It's easier not to think of it as such. Then, of course, it's too much to do with this thinker or that. We can't cope with too much thinking. It's too complex and... Well, didn't I start this meditation stuff to shut my head up? To keep my mind quiet? To calm my thoughts? Well, of course you did. But thoughts come nonetheless, and they demand in many ways that you pay them the right kind of attention. And when you do that, you may find that many of them are wanting. And not just wanting to be silenced, but wanting to be evolved. Just remember, most schools of Buddhism consider suffering and ignorance the obstacles. But which ignorance is it? Just the one that Buddhism speaks about? Which Buddhism? At which point in history? And in which formulation? Ah, hmm. Now our discomfort with complexity is both a product of our age and a product of certain kinds of developments in Western society, but it is also a foundational element of anti-intellectualism and the refusal to bring our personal beliefs and practices into relationship with the complex ecology of ideas that our human species has developed since pen was put to paper. If anything, our current age is a demonstration of what happens when large numbers of people retreat from complexity. On the left and on the right and most other places in politics at present, complexity is ejected in favour of sloganeering and simple ideas and simple beliefs and a sense of belonging to the righteous. Nowhere is this more evident than in America, but of course it infects and infests much of the rest of the world. Now, excuses for not engaging with something like Wallace's work or other insightful, intellectually robust analysis are mirrored in a more general refusal to engage with the ongoing, never-ending pursuit of better understanding, clearer knowledge and additional perspectives being carried out across the globe, where outcomes are almost never guaranteed, and final truths are merely unreliable resting places for the overly confident or fatigued. Apply that to Buddhism for a moment. How often do you hear phrases 
that seem to indicate that this is it. The nature of human being is suffering. This is samsara. Meditation will fix all problems. Enlightenment is the goal. These are all in their own ways, forms of final truth. Again, you might not word them that way, you might not think about them that way, but they exist, most likely, in most cases, as some form or perversion of that. How do you know this? Well, you have to ask yourself to what degree you'd be willing to let go of such an idea. Right now. Give it up. And if so, what would be the consequences? And why would or wouldn't you do that? That in itself is a useful practice. If you're just thinking about anything, you just take as given. Now, more broadly, the kind of pursuit in which knowledge and practices are all part of the rich tapestry of our collective human effort to make sense of our lot, this is something that is imagined as a great feast in Wallace's work. Now, the great feast is a great metaphor. It's one for a place Imaginary, of course, but we can enact it if we so desire. But it is a place where all ideas, possibilities and questions can meet on a level playing field. Why? So that better learning, understanding, theory and practice can be developed. And new kinds of meetings may take place so that unexpected configurations of knowing and practice may emerge. I use the word better. I use the word more. Now, of course... We may not get any better, and we may not discover any more. It might be better sometimes to think about each additional relationship enriches our understanding and highlights the limits of what we currently know. It's difficult to get more intelligent, wiser, more knowledgeable, and freer of our ideological attachments without something like that taking place. And in that place, the much-vaunted simplicity of certain Western Buddhist thought can end up as a kind of incredible poverty, not just in terms of intellect, but also in terms of creativity, and I would argue, utility. That's right, simplicity is not just letting go of complexity and confusion, it's denying yourself access to, and engagement with, and I would argue a duty to, the wider world. That is, if anything, the absolute opposite of interdependence one of the fundamental characteristics that Buddhism on a good day highlights so successfully. The book Ideology is Western Buddhism's ego. It is the I of the subject and the we of the community. I won't lie to you, Wallace's book is indeed complex and not always an easy read. It requires effort and graft, but it provides powerful reward for those willing to enter the struggle. There are many features in it that were first explored in cruel theory, and at the SMB website, which should mean it's more easily accessible to those who have dabbled in either. But that doesn't mean it's inaccessible for the newcomer. Naturally, it evolves beyond both those original sources and develops further avenues of exploration as it continues Wallace's project to identify, analyse and to understand the dysfunctional collective psyche running through Western Buddhism. Its complexity is in part an attempt to evolve different ways of seeing and thinking alongside and with Buddhist thought, rather than passively follow it or lazily oppose it. It attempts to put into practice what Wallace has learnt from many great thinkers, with Francois Larouelle being the most important. 
If you don't know who he is, he's a living French philosopher, a mathematician, who created something called, well, non-philosophy, or the science of philosophy. Could we also call this the science of Buddhism? Well, it sounds a little grand, and Wallace hasn't chosen to use that kind of phrase. But in a sense, it does seek to produce a more objective analysis of Buddhism, whilst not being indifferent to it. It certainly won't hurt you to have a good dictionary at hand and a willingness to do some additional reading as you make your way through Wallace's text. I have had the same experience myself and have had to do the same when reading Laruelle's work. It is best to think of reading this kind of book as a practice. That's right, a practice. And if you take it as a personal practice, it does produce phenomenological fruit to sit with. The book is divided into three parts. The first is an analysis of Western Buddhism's dysfunctional psyche. The second part looks at non-Buddhism specifically and the possibility of something called imminent practice. If you're unaware of any of this stuff, just remember that my podcast explores all of them in ways that I would consider accessible. The third section looks at the development of something called a Buddha fiction which might be what comes out of a disenchanted form of contemporary Buddhism. In part one, we find an intriguing engagement with contemporary Western Buddhist staples. And I think the best way to invite you into the feast at this point is to pose its chapters as questions. What is wisdom, really? Why is wisdom so seductive yet difficult to locate? What power does belief in ephemeral omniscience grant a tradition, teacher or practitioner? What happens when well-being becomes the goal of practice? What sorts of compromises must be undertaken to reach such a lofty goal? Who gains from such an odd spiritual goal? What aspects of reality must be denied to focus one's spiritual quest on it? Is Buddhism really all it's cracked up to be? Does it truly have all the answers? Is it a sufficient means for addressing all suffering? What consequences emerge from the belief that Buddhism is all one needs? And what about emptiness? Is it really a magical void of bliss? Is it the end goal? Is it actually empty or rather filled with something unexpected? What would nihilists have to say about such a goal? The first section disrupts many of the foregone conclusions of Western Buddhism. It unpacks the rhetoric of Buddhist discourse and peeks under the hood, into the dark abyss of its unspoken assumptions and commitments. There will be many, many interesting surprises awaiting those unfamiliar with such terrain. One central key to understanding relevance and utility in Wallace's critique is the notion of sufficiency. This comes from Francois Laruelle originally. The concept is far-reaching. To believe in the sufficiency of Buddhism or any other ideology is to hold to a vision of the world that is already made, already complete. As such, it affords various guarantees that need only be accepted digested and integrated into one's subjective experience of the world. Thus, an ideological subject is born and fashioned. This may not sound so bad when one affectionately thinks of Buddhism, 
Yet such a behavioural turn leads to a new kind of relationship, not only with Buddhism, but with the world at large. One that is structurally predictable and antagonistic to forms of thought or practice that undermine the postulates and certainties of Buddhism. Because affiliation with a given Buddhism is so important, emotionally meaningful and intellectually stabilizing, to undermine Buddhism's truths, whether noble or otherwise, is to disrupt the solidity and guarantees that spiritual commitment to Buddhism provides. At this point, you may be noticing that this kind of engagement is best suited to people with a serious amount of experience with Buddhism under their belt. To disrupt this stance, you see, is usually highly disruptive and typically deeply discomforting. That leads to something called disenchantment, usually. But once all of this is grasped as a form of insight, recognizing the principle of sufficiency in Buddhism opens up a whole new world, one that radically destabilizes one's relationship with any and all forms of Buddhism, and more widely, what might be popularly understood as spirituality. This, you see, is not just mere destruction. It is rebirth. Now, sufficiency coupled with decision, another key concept which we'll get to, constitutes the awakening of the non-Buddhist. To realize the fallacy of sufficiency is to cease to identify with Buddhism wholeheartedly as a self-contained means for resolving one's suffering and the suffering of all sentient beings. It does not mean in any way, and really this is important, the need to discard and reject Buddhism as a whole. It is not a process of saying Buddhism bad after all, but rather it is a means for liberation from the dark side of treating Buddhism as an ideological form and imbuing it with all of the dysfunction, desire, hopes and fears of Western society and the particular form of that which you were born into. It is, in many ways, to uncouple yourself from the arms of a suffocating, intimate embrace that blinds and seduces an equal measure. This is a struggle that all Buddhists, in some sense, are engaged in, including all of the teachers, and some would argue even all of the Asian teachers that have set up shop in the West. This book, then, is not for those who reject Buddhism whole and abandon the raft. They've gone already, haven't they? but rather for those who are significantly repulsed by its dysfunctional edge, yet are compelled to continue with it all the same. For there continues to be immense worth and value and practices that may yield greater purpose. This is the non-position, one that refuses to be formed by the embrace or the emotional breakup. The first step thus may be that of the voyeur, who finds new stimulation by looking anew and from unexpected angles. Now, I'm saying a lot, but as you can probably gather, it's important. This in itself is an attempt to entice you to take a look and at least give it some thought. Now, a few words on part two and part three. Part two specifically takes Wallace's engagement with the thought of Francois Laruel further as he explores non-Buddhism. He touches on key themes including the central role of decision, which can be understood as a meaningful commitment to becoming a member of a group 
or identifying with a system of thought or practice to the degree that it becomes part of me and just who I am. Uncoupling our subjective sense of self from a Buddhist identity and recognizing that Buddhism is human material first is to invite oneself into a new kind of subjective terrain, a strange land, a strange world, a different mode of being which triggers dissonance with the norms of Buddhism and Buddhists. The name for this figure is the stranger subject, he or she who no longer fools for the warm embrace of certainty, no longer fits into the team of Buddhist subjects who no longer vibrates in harmony with those still in a committed relationship with the Buddha. This is in a sense a new start, a second wind, a new opportunity. These folks have estranged themselves from the games of contemporary Western Buddhism and are, in a sense, free to come at Buddhist thought and Buddhist practice anew if they so choose. Part 3 unpacks the nature of story, illusion and fantasy surrounding Buddhist discourse and the possibility of recasting the curious stranger into a new world of thought and potential practice. In defining Buddhism as whole, many fall for the stories that the various Buddhisms have woven to justify their legitimacy as complete systems for liberating beings from suffering. Yes, you've guessed it. The implications of all this talk so far is that that is not the case. Is there the potential for it? Of course. But is it a given if you just follow the well-trod path? Hmm. The notion of the Bodhisattva, superlative, fully awakened, perfect beings, are all, in a sense, forms of violence against the human subject whose first commitment ought to be to the sea of humanity that stretches far beyond the rhetoric of any given ideology. In dismantling the unconscious of Western Buddhism, Wallace tells another story, one that accompanies what can become newly workable materials that were once obfuscated by the desires, almost always well-intentioned, that too often act to fill the gaping hole of Western materialism. Wallace's desire is clearly to lead us forwards to the great feast of knowledge where Buddhism is welcome to participate in the wider world of thought and practice, present its goods and be willing to see its truths and practices in new forms of light. This is a self-aware and transformational telling in which the subject or practitioner can cease to be the ideological product of Buddhism and instead become an active agent in the contemporary construction of new potentials as Buddhism is taken out into the world beyond the buttresses of self-referencing and self-serving sufficient Buddhism. Finally, for those concerned that all that might be on offer is theory, look no further than the chapter on imminent practice, which develops further the implications of a Buddhist practice rooted in imminence and stripped of the secret transcendent desire that animates contemporary Western spiritual practice more broadly. Each movement of analysis raises questions and provides materials for practicing a new kind of relationship with Buddhist materials, one radically diverse from that which is usually found in the pages of Shambhala's Sun or the new best-selling book on Buddhism, with added science, no doubt, and more mindfulness. Now, all of this is my way of making sense of Wallace's book, but a straightforward take might come from Stuart, my old buddy on the podcast, if he were the one writing this review. He would say it differently. He would likely cast us back to the Matrix. 
Yes, the film when Neo faces a decisional point when offered two pills by the pseudo-guru Morpheus. Wallace's book is most certainly the red pill. It leads to a sober, harsh world that may not be to your liking, but it is more real than the fantasy that was inhabited before. More books on wellness, neuroscience, happiness and mindful tea and donuts constitute the blue pill. Take your pick or don't bother. It's up to you. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools, well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts, and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. Thank you.